Hello there, this is Kevin Pascal and you're tuned in to the Hinted Neuron Podcast. On this episode, you hear me talk with Ene Ijatu. She's a feminist, youth advocate, a writer, and also a stylist. We talked about feminism, gender, and equality. At some point, you would notice that we kept digressing towards philosophy, <laughs> but that's the beauty of engaging in this dance of nuance to conversation. Personally, I think she's a brilliant and amazing human being. I also see myself having other conversations with her in the future. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review five stars on Apple Podcasts or share this episode. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out on Instagram or Twitter at Hinted Neuron. And now, here's my conversation with Ene Ijatu. I am here with Ene Ijatu. Thank you for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having me. One of the main focus of you know this discussion is to highlight some of the current trends around the issues of gender, feminism, and equality, since there's now much in our social discourse. And it's now beginning to get hard to have much of these discussions around, you know, a very sane manner whereby we could have discussions around this topic without, without resulting to people insulting each other. That was one aspect. And, you know, why I wanted to have you on this podcast, because I've seen your views and and your debates with other people on Twitter too. It's very important for us to have these discussions in a very nuanced manner, in, you know, in a way we don't result into talking about each other, because that's what, that's, that's what happens mostly on on Twitter and those other platforms. So I guess a good place to start would be, you know, talk about the history of what feminism is and, you know, the different waves it has evolved through and, you know, where we are now in that movement. Well, that question actually would require me to define feminism then because you're saying what it is and how it started. The The inception of feminism is the definition of feminism. So I don't think they can be removed from each other. But yeah, um, feminism generally, I would describe um, political, cultural, and economic movements that um, aim to um, establish some sense of equal rights and protection for women, legal protection for women specifically. And over like time, decades, women have fought for the right to the right to bodily autonomy and integrity, um, the right to own property, um, reproductive rights, um, contraception, prenatal care, protection from um, gender-based violence, domestic, domestic violence, um, workplace rights, etc. And um, I think feminism was born out of the need to establish that full human um, rights of women as um, human beings in society. So... Um, when people talk about feminism and talk about feminist history, I think um, it can categorically be um, put into three waves. Um, that's the first, second, and the third wave of feminism. And I think, obviously, the first wave was the beginning of feminism. And um, it started around the 19th, 20th century, yeah, where women, it was basically about women trying to vote. It was like women say were saying men have always had the right to vote. Um, being able to vote means a person is a um full citizen and full human being that is recognized by law so women should have that right to 
um, vote. And um, the second wave, um, which is around the 1960s, 1970s, um, was about women's liberation movement for equal legal and social rights, that's um, the right to own property, and et cetera. And the third wave, that's beginning in um, the 1990s, yeah, um, refers to the continuation of and the reaction, basically, of second wave feminism. And um, first wave, wave feminism actually... Um, as, aside the fact that it was basically concerned about, about um, women's right to vote, it was also um, about contract and property rights for women um, and the, the, the basically the autonomy of women, as in the liberation of women from being seen legally as properties of their husbands. And primarily, it was right to vote than this, that's the right to autonomy as a, an individual recognized under the law. And yeah, the first wave um feminist movements, obviously in America, um was I think it ended with the um first amendment. Yeah, the first um the passage of the first amendment. Sorry, the nineteenth amendment, sorry, to the United States Constitution mm. and um which granted women the rights to vote. <clears throat> and yeah, um second wave of feminism, like I said, focused on e- equality and um discrimination and um, I, uh, it talked a lot about, um, women's cultural and political inequalities as inextricably linked, um, to the personal lives of women and their personal, um, identity and stories in society as we see it. So, um, and it was a lot of the time focused on the most amplified voices of the secondary feminist movements, which were always white. Um, cisgendered um, women in America, and which um, in the third wave um, of feminism, which we currently are in, has um, sort of removed itself from that narrative because it felt like that narrative was um, exclusionary in a lot of ways because it didn't have an intersectional view of what of the experiences that women go through and the experiences that women face um, in the world because it was just basically um women like um Germain yeah and um other white <coughs> feminist um icons who were at the forefront of the movement and their stories were always centered around their own personal um experiences so it didn't encompass the experiences of say a black trans woman in America or um other um marginalized and minority groups in the country. So that's how third wave feminism was um, born as a response to that particular narrative of second wave um, feminism. So, yeah, I think basically that's just we are at this stage where feminism um, is trying to encompass all the intersectionalities involved in um, achieving women's full human rights. Um, so it will take the viewpoint of a Muslim woman, the viewpoint of um, a woman from other um, religious backgrounds, a woman who is um, Black, Hispanic, um, Asian, and so many other different diverse groups of women and unite their challenges and their struggles into one. And that is why um, I think a lot of the time, third wave feminism, that's the feminism that we currently have, is synonymous with intersectional intersectional feminism. So, yeah, (laughs) I think that's where we're at. That's really interesting. It's a really good and brief. But I think intersectionality is one thing we would have to go. I think that's something we'll still talk about in this conversation. But 
you, you said something at the beginning. Do you think like, you know, I, I don't know how you view feminism. Feminism as an idea as or a political movement. It just that's just a quick question. So that would just how do we have to view feminism? Because um I don't know how to ask this question, or I don't know if you get what I'm saying. Feminism as an idea or feminism as a political well, movement, are they the same thing? Well, the thing is, I feel um, I've had this conversation with a lot of people before, and I, I say that um, feminism is fundamentally the ideology behind um, women's rights and liberation on the basis that all genders are equal and deserve equal rights. But the movement of feminism, and I think some feminists, some people who identify as feminists, just like I am some one of those people who identify as feminists, would disagree with me on this, is that I think the movement is removed from the ideology in the sense that the movement is the interpretation of individuals um, mm. in approach to actualize this, um, I, um, this ideology of feminism. For example, say radical feminists. Radical feminists uh. are intentionally... <clears throat> anti-traditional structures that have been put in place um, to um, keep women in certain roles and men also. I mean, though the focus is not on men, but like generally the traditional, the anti-traditional roles. And so they would always go against traditional roles just to make the statement that women should be liberated from those confining cons- constructs of traditional um, gender roles. But then someone like, say, what other kind of feminists? Then we have liberal feminists, we have neoliberal feminists, we have, these are people who, feminism as a fundamental um, ideology is women, um, women's rights on the basis of equality of all the sexes. Now, the approach is the move, are uh, the various movements that surround feminism. Say, someone is taking a radical approach to feminism, someone is taking a liberal approach to feminism, someone is taking, um, Different, that's, I think that's the difference between the ideology feminism and the movement feminism. Yeah, that was a whole lot because I mean, feminism has evolved into this big thing where there are just so many kind of points and yeah. you know, school of thoughts on what it could be and so many ideologies. That's, just, that's, that's, that's the problem because I think people, it's hard for people to separate um, feminism, the ideology and feminism, the movements because the movements are like the face, should I use that word? Or like what people see when they, or like someone who's approaching feminism from a purely on academic or on intellectual point of view would assess feminism based on its representations that um, self-proclaimed feminists um, portray. So for example, someone who is coming from that point of view that is non, not intellectual or non-academic would see feminism as a radical feminist feminism. Or someone would mm. see the entire ideology of feminist, uh, a feminism, sorry, as the point of view of like a liberal feminist or an intersectional feminist or et cetera. That's the problem. What, what, what do you think? Because let, let's just like center on you now for a bit. Your own, what, what, what do you think were your own personal experiences that, that drew you to feminism? And like, why, or maybe the simple question is, why did you become a feminist? When I um, think about the various things that led me to feminism, I think um, for me, it has always been that when I, when I talk to my parents, 
I've always been that child who was always questioning things. I really wanted to understand the mechanism of why um, thoughts were the way that they were, why uh, beliefs were the way that they were. And I was just open to questioning things. And one of the things that I questioned a lot was the traditional portrayal of who I was supposed to be, what I was supposed to wear, how I was supposed to, how was it, how I was supposed to behave. Oh, sit down, close your leg, you're a girl. Or um, mm. girls don't climb trees or girls don't do this. And I've always wondered why was my entire being forced to fit into like this singular, um, singular box. Yeah. Like why was I forced to fit into that? And for me, I didn't know what feminism was at that point in time. I just knew that I was always, um, that, um, strong headed child who would always, um, give her parents headache because she never really, agreed to wearing the clothes that her mom wanted her to wear or sitting mm. the way her parents wanted her to sit or going to the kitchen to cook, for example, because she was a girl. So there were just things I was always pushing back at because I was like, why are my brothers not supposed to do those things? Why was I, why am I the only one who was made to do those things? And I think as I grew, I was, I was a really voracious reader. So as I grew up, um, and I started reading a lot of literature, both fiction and nonfiction, I got to see like, a different um, society. I got to see different societies. Um, I got to see different perspectives and different views on the human society and um, um, about identity. And I think that's one of the first things that I think the first person who the first feminist that I ever um, read about was um, Simone de Beauvoir, um, the person yeah. who wrote the Second Sex. I think. I, I I stumbled upon her book in a library. That is like the bizarre. It was a very bizarre thing. I was in secondary school. I think I was in Jess too. Our school library is very extensive because it's like funded by the university. Um, I was in mm. secondary school, but yeah, so it was really broad. So I I stumbled upon the book and I didn't make sense of a lot of things then because the language was kind of complex. But I think from the things that I was able to pick up, I picked up the definition of um feminism and woman and the various factors that come into play in how women are represented in society and i think for me that's my first um true first true intellectual introduction to feminism so since then it has been various other authors that have caught my fancy and that i've um indulged in reading and conversation yes I think your your secondary school must have been very rich because um, Simone de Beauvoir's second sex to be found in a Nigerian library. That's I know, right? Kind of odd. That's one of the <laughs> yes. weirdest things. And when I tell people that story, they're like, for real, for real. And I don't know. I feel like I feel compelled to go back to that school and just go and see if that book is still in the library so that I can take a picture and be like, what the hell? <laughs> but yeah. I think, especially in Nigeria, most people got to know about feminism just by reading Adichie's work. Oh, I think yeah. that was the most popular one here. So if we step back for a bit, you know, and, and because I, I think most of um, the third wave feminism is happening online. Hmm. I think because most of what, that's what I, I think. Uh, because you know most of what people the most of the advocacy and the talks and the discourse around feminism right now is happening online but i don't know if you agree with that but i think it has now sparked oh, this whole <laughs> <laughs> so it has 
I think because it, there's I, there's a lot of um, talks about this. There's even something I heard about a fourth wave feminism. That that one is what's happening on Twitter. Well, I think since this discourse is happening mostly online, it has sparked up this whole gender wars and you know feminizing men and talking. And we are always like having we are we are always seeing these issues every day. So. I want you to comment on what are your thoughts on this gender wars and, you know, where it would go during the course of so many years from now. Um, to be honest, I have like a lot of criticism for um, gender wars, to be honest, because I think both um, the men and women, yeah, who perpetuate and who feel this gender wars are terribly misguided. I think it's not about a war against both genders, and that's the problem. And I can understand why that's a problem because we live in such a time when um, genocentrism is just so um, popular amongst so many um, discourse. And I think it has mm. to. It's 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 because I I, I feel personally that it's an approach that people are using. Um, feminists <laughs> are using mm. to. Um, kind of find a way towards gender equality because you have the argument of, of feminists saying, well, the point is right now it's all about women because it's women who have been disadvantaged, it's women who have been excluded, it's women who have been oppressed. So, of course, we should focus on the disadvantages that women have faced and um, try to remedy those um, disparities and make it um, an equal distribution or um, a playing field. But I feel like the aspect of this conversation that a lot of people who bring forth this narrative, of course, I understand that it's women who, has always, who have always been disadvantaged in this part yeah. um, of the conversation because it's women who are not allowed to go to school. It was women who are not allowed to um, have careers. It was women who are not allowed to own property. So, of course, the disparity exists because as women have been excluded for centuries while men have always been leading the forefront of innovation and sciences and technology so of course there would be this wide gap because women are still trying to close that gap that has been driven by centuries of being left behind intentionally so well intentionally is a heavy word because um there are lots of factors that actually um yeah. informed decisions that were taken against against now seems like an intentional word also but i'm taking in the um what disadvantage of women at the disadvantage of women and so but in this decade in this era where we have people who are bringing forth the ideology that feminism should phase out because we should adopt something more um equal like egalitarianism that addresses injustices on a basis of yeah. what is more pressing and what is more um critical to address so they say well let's just leave feminism but i think my problem with people who um, propose that particular ideology is that um they come from the privileged perspective and that's my criticism for them. It's the privileged perspective of saying, mm. okay, we're, in this society, we have achieved um, a situation where girls are um, girls go to school as much as boys do. Now, yeah, women are not being excluded from a vast majority of the workforces. Yeah, there are legal laws that protect women. There are laws that 
But then these are Western societies or um, urban societies, even in third world countries. But there are women who still have the realities of being um, exempted from education, who are being married off as children, who are being, um, who have their genitals being mutilated to um, cause bodily harm to them and limit their bodily autonomy. And there are so many women who live these realities in millions. And so by saying, oh no, let's just like really forget that and then let's focus on addressing the general population. That seems very privileged to me because it is not an even field yet. Because of course we, I, I, I agree that there are so many issues that men go through. Of course I understand that men have to deal with mental health issues and suicides and the feeling of being sidelined when, um, it is women who are on the focus now, women who, women's issues that are on the focus now and on the forefront. But, and sometimes it, it, it brings some kind of resentment in some men because they feel like they're being excluded and being left behind. But the um, problem is that we have to actually find a middle ground. Okay. And this is my criticism towards people who are um, generally genocentric um, in this particular aspect in saying, it's only women's issues that we're concerned about. I think you can be both a feminist and an egalitarian. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. And though I don't want to obviously force or compel people, and I'm not saying that you must be a feminist and, and, and an egalitarian. I'm just saying like you can be someone whose primary focus is rectifying the critical women's issues that are happening all around the world because it is very critical. But you can also be someone who is compassionate and who will address issues regardless of gender and regardless of ethnicity and anything, as long as it's an injustice. For example, say I'm someone who is a feminist and is fighting for women's rights, but if there's a man here who is unjustly treated, if there's a man who is suffering from so many issues and his issues are not being spoken on, of course I would go to his, um, I, would, I would lend my voice to his issue and of course I would fight for his rights and of course that I would um, champion his um, case, however that <laughs> goes. But I'm just saying that you can be both a feminist and an egalitarian. And a lot of feminists think, well, if you're focusing on women's rights, well, men's rights don't matter. I don't think so. And I think that's a very, very wrong ideology to perpetuate because people's feelings are <clears throat> very important when you talk about trying to engage uh, a large population of people to believe in, accept, and actually contribute to um, causes that you particularly believe in. That's the point. We cannot say, oh, well, men have to suck it up and they have to like um, understand that women have always been disadvantaged in the, from time immemorial and like they, it's, not, it's time for them to remedy that situation. So they have to give up some of their um, privileges. I'm just saying yeah. that um, you can say, okay, men, women's issues are very pressing and we need to address these issues. But we also hear you and we also hear the problems that you are facing and we want to help as much as we can. That is not a, I mean, it does, does that seem far-fetched? I don't know. I just don't, I, I think I can channel as much energy as I can to fight for women's causes and I can also lend my voice as much as I can to also help men's causes. That's when I hear stories like, for example, um, I can't remember the, the, the name of this man who um, built a, shel a shelter for men in the UK and then he was being criticized and being sold by a lot of quote unquote feminists and then he committed suicide 
I believe that's a very, very pernicious thing for those women who call themselves feminists to have done. Like, Mm. why would you hinder people addressing other injustices because they're not women's injustices? It makes zero sense to me. And I really don't understand the ideology that goes into that thinking of saying, well, men should die or suffer. And when women's issues must be the only thing that we are addressing. That is that that doesn't make any sense objectively yeah. at all. Yeah, because because I, I think is you know to frame frame society as this whole thing of male privilege. I mean because you know they, they we always hear this word male privilege. I've talked to a lot of people concerning this. You know, I've asked them in your life, where do you think you are privileged? So because it's always a problem for them. To, you know, to point out, maybe they could be privileged in ways they are not seeing. Of course, most privileged people don't actually see where they are privileged in. So, you know, talk to boys, you know, ask them where they are privileged. Because I think that's what causes m- much of the pushback and anger in them that people tell them they are privileged and they don't actually see their privilege. And, you know, yeah. that's what now causes most of this gender wars online because you are telling me I'm privileged and I, I don't see the privilege and there, there are laws now, there are laws, they are making laws to, you know, to push up one certain gender and men feel left behind. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> what are your own thoughts concerning that? Yeah. And that's what um, I said um, regarding the approach that a lot of the time is being taken, for example, with quotas. Um <coughs> Saying there should be um, a 50-50 representation in some organization in organizations because mm, to foster equality in representation. So if there are 50 mm. professors that are male, there should be 50 professors that are female, and those mm. kinds of um things. I think, yeah, for um spaces such as politics and um people who are responsible for constitution and legislative power, I think in those kind of spaces, yes, I do believe in quotas. I do believe in equal representation. I do believe even amongst the candidates that are chosen, um, there should be equal representations across gender, race, um, sexual orientation, ethnicity, and etc. Because only then can we have like varying perspectives and perspectives that influence laws and policies that would actually um, involve the experiences of people who um, identify with all these various, um, identities. Yeah. So, but in spaces that have to do with merit, I think like places, for example, that are academic, I think instead of, um, saying, well, women should, whether they're demerited or not, should always have a 50% space reserved and men who are deserving but because of the fact that they're, they've exceeded the 50% for men well even though they do fare better than the women they should um, not be given that space I've had a lot of conversations with people regarding this particular issues I don't think I can with all good conscience um, tell you that I have um, arrived at a stance on the matter like a, a, a particular position where I am undoubtedly sure that it's the right thing to do because I do think representation is, is, is important for young people who want to go into diverse fields and it's important for a girl, say, for example, who wants to go into the tech field to see 
women just as much as men in the tech field and the boy who wants to go to tech field also to see it as not a space that's dominated by men, but as a space that's um, open to cooperation between both genders. And if it were a, a situation whereby we had already achieved a world where accessibility to education um, for all the genders was equal, um, accessibility to information and tools and um, influences towards these career paths were equal, then I would say it is terrible to use that quota system. But we exist in a world yeah. currently where accessibility is not equal. There, there, there are situations where men get access to more um, education, edu- ed- more education than women do. Um, there are situations whereby men are groomed from when they were younger, even in progressive, some progressive families in Nigeria, for example, where um, both children are groomed. They, they, they send your sons and your daughters to school. They um, tell them they can aspire to be anything that they want to be. But um, sometimes when daughters from this kind of family chooses um, a course that's probably male-dominated, the parents will be like, oh, well, choose this course. I mean, you can go for a course that's more women-friendly. And these are factors that influences women's choices yeah. to go for some of these career paths. And then you have um, the media where when they are trying to advertise something that has to do with mechanics and cars and um, all these tech-based things, they use men to advertise them. So men, women never see themselves in those kinds of spaces. They feel if they ever go there, they would feel marginalized and they would feel like they were always trying to keep up with something. Not everybody is as competitive and as resilient to say, oh, well, suck it up. I mean, not everybody is Marie Curie, for example, who, even though she was told not to go to school, um, she was told women couldn't read sciences in England. She had to travel mm. all the way to France. I mean, she had the resources, she had the resilience, she had um, all that to fight against that system. Not everybody's like Marie Curie. And I know the vast majority of human beings are not like <clears throat> Marie, Marie Curie. I think she's the outlier in situations like this. So I do think the question regarding this is a, a bit more complex. And I think it's a situation that needs to be handled with more empathy than um, not. Because I think, of course, it's, it's, it's reasonable to feel left out. It's reasonable to say, well, I deserve this position. Why am I not getting it? But if you step back, and I think that's the problem, I don't think you can address this particular situation only by telling pe- men, well, suck it up and take responsibility for what your ancestors did in all these years by leaving women mm. out. I, I think it, 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 it's, it's not a, um, a forthright um, approach to take because I think it'd be better to appeal more to their sensibilities and their humanity in that aspect than to... Um, force them in that way to accept the situation as it is. But I think we should not lie to ourselves and say the reality of women's accessibility to tech spaces and politics are the same with men's accessibility to those spaces. And that is why a lot of the time, women who do not necessarily merit it based on the academic qualifications are given it because it has been seen to be cases of more, more often than not that um, sometimes women who do have the uh, merit to access the spaces might have given it up for, to become wives. Because let's not kid ourselves, the vast majority of women who get an education and who yeah. at the end of the day choose to follow a par- career almost always reduce their ambition to become wives and mothers. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you expect them to be equal representation in those spaces or equal real competition in those spaces when we are always asking women by default to give up their ambitions to become good wives and good mothers, even if they're capable? 
So we can never really know the amount of women that are capable of, of, of inhabiting, this, inhabiting these spaces and making like <clears throat> a fairly competitive ground um, for this case if we are not going to take into account all these other variables that play a role um, in this. And I think that's where the conversation should be had. And I don't know why yeah. people are not talking about it in that particular um, manner. People are always just talking about, well, uh, well, men should suck it up. I don't think that's a reasonable statement to make when you're having like um, an intelligent conversation about the reason why things are the way they are. I think it's important for us to criticize approach and find the reasons why things are the way that they are and why we're going towards the direction um, in the way that we're going towards it. And if it's not... Um, reasonable then we find alternatives because i believe if it's not reasonable that this particular approach is being taken then we definitely have to find another approach it is not an infallible yeah. approach to say okay well we're giving quota systems i don't even think 100 that it's um the best answer i just think well for now i don't really have as much criticism against it as i do for it so that's yeah my- i i i I think you you um you are beginning to open up a Pandora's box of gender roles here, and you know I I find it good that would explore that to explore that area. Um, but I just wanted to you know say something concerning what what you pointed out. Um, it's just um a small story from last year. There was this competition, an AI competition, where you know people had to compete. It was over three hundred people, and the organization um sponsoring and you know organizing this competition said that they are still going to pick girls like 10 more girls that didn't qualify because they had like um, a, a point you must pass you know they, they, they just said you will pick the um, first 100 people but we'll still pick up two like 20 more girls from the people that didn't that are not in that first 100 you know and they put more girls from from the last um, I mean from the other from the other category that didn't qualify you know, and it still didn't match up at all. The the numbers were not equal. So I now I, I thought about it now. I'm just I, I was just thinking about it now. Do you think the problem because just to enter the gender roles conversation, do you think the problem is interest that we don't actually have more girls who are interested in this thing, or is just um an effect of socialize socialization and we don't have any natural explanation for it? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, um, I do think that girls are not inherently averse to mathematics and the sciences. I don't think it is um, a, bi- a biological trait. Um, I think it's a socialized system. I think um, women have naturally been told by the traditional gender roles that they were more given to nurturing and more given to caregiving professions and the likes. And I think men have always been told that they're more given to the ambitious and more competitive um, aspects of life because we have had people who have gone against that and have succeeded. We have um, people who have um, made tremendous um, contributions to both aspects of these spectrums, women who have contributed tremendously to science and technology and men who have contributed um, tremendously to humanities and caregiving and other um, career paths um, stereotypically associated with um, um, femininity. So um, regarding that, um, regarding the story, actually, first of all, that you told um, about um, these girls being included, 
it's, it's still the same conundrum for me, to be honest, because I'm saying I cannot objectively criticize their decision to add more girls, even if they did not qualify, given so many factors. Maybe they, 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 their idea of adding girls that didn't qualify was just to say, well, we want to motivate you enough to develop interest in this particular subject, even if your interests have never really been, we want to show you what it feels like to um, experience this firsthand. And um, we want to try as much as possible to encourage you to see what it feels like, what it is to be part of this um, space of technology. But when it comes to a competition, like um, a competition based on competency i think and in the end of course it's the guys that will um the guys who are more um who are more should i say equipped um that would um top this particular um competition i guess i mean guys guys i mean both girls and boys i mean the people who are sorry are more um who deserve it by merits that will obviously still top the competition i don't think it is possible well, it is possible, but I don't think they would intentionally mess with um, the outcomes of um, a free and fair competition. Yeah? yeah, I just think probably for the um, qualifying to be a part of the comp- competition was probably something that they did to just <clears throat> to encourage girls to be a part of it, but not necessarily to say even if you win or not win. I mean, would still make you the winner. That makes zero sense. So. In this aspect, I think people who are feminists and people who um, are interested in gender equality should focus more on the variables that play um, important roles in the way girls are shaped right from their infant stage. What influences their decisions? What influences their um, choices? What influences what they're more um, driven towards? I mean, you give children toys that influences your decision you expose them to the media what they see influences the decisions i mean when you have catalogs that are advertising um or catalogs for females that are um, ad- ad- advertising um, makeup and fashion and you have catalogs for males that are advertising um technology and games and sports and innovation of course there's going to be a disparity of outcome of course there are going to be more women who are not interested in that and more men who are interested in that and that's the point I want to actually ask, are there as much media representation out there? Are there as much, um, I think I was just trying to explain that, um, generally what people should be focused on when it comes to, um, this equality of outcomes should be addressing all the variables that contribute to shaping women the way that, sorry, girls into the way that they, um, become yeah. the choices that they make. Yeah. Yeah, what, what do you think of, um, I don't know if you've listened to Judah Peterson's, um, critique of equality of outcome. I, I don't know if you've, yeah, I mean, heard of the guy. It's really what do you think funny. of his critique? It's really funny because, like, um, I've heard about Judah Peterson for like a while, maybe two years now, or more longer than that. And whenever I hear about him, it's always from the mouth of, or the perspective of, um, a religious fundamentalist. And I'm like, if a religious fundamentalist supports this guy, I mean, how much can his credibility be to me? I mean, to me. And I, 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 I go and I, 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 I Google, um, his name. And then 
an, a, a clip of an argument or a conversation or a debate that he's involved in comes in. And then there's like this five minutes or this four minutes um, reel of what he's saying or what his, 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 his stance or perspective on a particular question thrown at him is. And I think I have never really like agreed with it at all. And I've, and I, I'm like, wow, I, I really can't listen to, the, to, to this guy for longer than this because I don't know how he has managed to really, but I feel like all his opponents were just less equipped than him in most of the debates that he had been in. Hold on. And then yesterday, by chance, I was just um, perusing through the internet and then on YouTube, um, there was a suggestion. I think I was going through some philosophical um, <clears throat> threads and then there was... Um, a suggestion to see Jonathan um view on this particular issue. And then I clicked on it and I was like, hmm? I mean, I don't know if it's, it's, I don't know if I was like, is this the same person that I've had this opinion about? <laughs> because it seemed like the particular video that I watched was kind of contradictory to my perception that I had of him and of the mm. other videos that um, I've seen. So I downloaded some of these um, um, full-length videos that probably span like two hours. Yeah. So I downloaded, I came home, a binge watch of um, his conversations. And I realized that if there's anything that I can, without a doubt, accept about Jordan Peterson is his um, his ability to be as objective as possible in explaining why his certain views about certain things are the way that they are. I do not necessarily agree with a lot of the things that he says, not a lot, or some of the things that he says, but he's a highly intelligent man and he is mostly right about a lot of things that he says. So, which is why it is so surprising that today you're talking about him and just last night I was binging on so much of his content. So, yeah, um, based on his um, um, belief on equality of outcomes, I will say that Jordan Peterson believes that um, human beings inherently have this hierarchical nature that is predisposable to our, like, we're given to it by our biology, yeah? That um, there's always going to be hierarchy. Hierarchy is for order, yeah? And hierarchy is important to maintain order. And the system that currently exists from hierarchy <clears throat> is not necessarily those that are singularly born of tyrannical um, people or tyrannical systems, but mm. of more competence, but more of competence. Yeah. Competence creates hierarchy in his um, belief. Well, maybe you can call me um, an idealist or you can call me someone who is overly um, optimistic about human nature. But I do believe that um, competency does not necessarily equate to hierarchy. I believe there can be a distribution of competence that does not necessarily um, rewards one person at the expense of another person who probably is not as competent as the other person. That is my critique. I'm saying just because you are this um, doctor who is, has managed to cure so many um, diseases and so many things does not make you more deserving of, of basic human necessities and rewards um than say for example a cleaner at a hospital who has always been diligently cleaning the hospital yeah. i don't think you're better than that cleaner i don't think you deserve more than that cleaner and i probably would come i, I probably would say this purely based on a 
um <laughs> i don't want to use the word socialist so that i sound like someone who is um standing for like this broad ideology that has been um explained by different thinkers but i'm just going to say i don't think that <laughs> i don't think that yeah. co- um competence is necessarily synonymous with hierarchy i don't think it should lead to hierarchy necessarily i think people can just be competent in their various fields but still not be overly rewarded to the at the expense sorry of other people who are not as competent in that field and i think that's where i differ with um him regarding equality of outcomes i do think that once there is um a system that is established whereby everybody has equal accessibility to things and equal accessibility to various um wealth um of knowledge and um opportunities i still think that regardless of how people i feel like to to peterson it is human nature to always want to be rewarded for the feats that you get and i think this feat this reward sorry has in his mind is always represented as um, a step up the hierarchy yeah yeah but i believe that human beings can be better than that i believe that that is not necessarily a good approach to follow by always expecting people to be rewarded ba- to be rewarded in sense of more importance over people because of their ability to do more for example the system whereby during competitions the first position usually get way more gifts than the other um people the other runner ups and people say well the more gifts that the first position get um motivate people to want to be the first a position i think that is fundamentally a problem because of the way in which we socialize people for competitiveness in the first place i do understand that primitively human beings have always seen um co- competition as that that reward at the end of um that struggle what you get at the end but i think humans have evolved way more than we could have thought that we would i think we have evolved past so much um so many primates givens and so many what words do they use um primitive um behaviors so i think that is one of the primitive behaviors that we can transcend one that is more based on equality of course like i said it is an idealist perspective it is me thinking of human beings as the better of what they are because in reality it's very likely that very few people would actually accept this um perspective of saying regardless of how much you contribute into society um the person who doesn't contribute just as much in society should also enjoy as much as you enjoy in society and that is how we can achieve an equitable and fair and good society where we don't reward people um based on we don't like give more to people sorry based on what they contribute but we value each individual as an important component and we encourage people to do what they um feel is what they believe is right we encourage um positive behaviors we encourage um positive think thoughts rather than competitive thoughts i i know people would um disagree some people will disagree with me on this because people always say human nature it's just the way it is and it's hard to really think but i think if we can transcend there are people who have thought beyond this there are socialists who agree with this particular perspective of saying it shouldn't be a hierarchical system it should be a system where everyone is um treated fairly and equitable and nobody um has dominance over another person just because they contribute more in society 
And I think that's the thing that I stand when it comes to quality of outcome. Yeah, I, I I think this conversation is going well because, you know, I, I, I want to try to uncover as much areas where we disagree so we could, you know, talk about those things. Actually, I actually had the perspective that even before I discovered Judah Peterson that hierarchies should exist because I am more of, I, I, I like to see things from a very natural, evolutionary and game theoretic perspective. Because if you see our whole evolution, the way we evolved, it is true competition, it is true games. We've been playing this evolutionary game for long and it is, and it thrives through competition. I even, I, 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 I was, I, I don't know, one of my followers on Twitter, you know, wrote an article about meritocracy and she was comparing different types of meritocracy. We had a conversation about it. Hopefully I'll bring that to the podcast so we can also discuss about those things. But I still feel like, you know, the true human nature, we are not that different. At the very nature of us, we are just chimps. I don't try, I don't like to see things from this whole social perspective whereby. Of course. And I, and I, and, 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 and I think, um, at the end of the day, it depends on how your, your view of life is then. Because for Jordan Peterson, he believes that I, I think I'm not sure, but from his conversations, I can infer that his view on life is that the most optimal, um, contribution a human being can, can, can give is to the advancement of the human society collectively as a whole. Yeah. But mm. yeah, sure. yeah, but, but I necessarily do not, um, believe in, 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 in the human, um, the, sorry, the advancement of the human society to transcend, um, the fundamental moral obligation we have to ensure that everyone is treated fairly and um, equal. Because I particularly do not, do, my, 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 my belief system regarding purpose and life and existentialism is not the same as his. Yeah. And I think his perspective is what has informed, he, he, he believes that probably there is a purpose for human existence in the grand scheme where God wants us to achieve or attain some form of, mm. yeah. I, I don't necessarily believe in that. Yeah. So I don't believe that we were born to advance and sacrifice as much as we can to advance to God knows where or when. Yeah. But whomever believes that particular perspective will obviously disagree with my, um, belief on hierarchy not being the goal. Because if you actually believe in the ultimate goal of the human experience is the collective advancement of the human society generally, then of course, you would believe hierarchy is very important in this because it has shown a long trend, uh, trend, sorry, of it being one of the key driver in human advancement, hierarchy, competition. Yeah, you know, but for someone who doesn't believe that that is the, op- the, the, the ultimate um, goal of the human experience, um, I don't think, um, um, hierarchy is necessary. You know, at some point, you know, I, I've thought about this in a way whereby because I used to, I used to hold a near nihilist kind of perspective on life. Well, I started to see things, you know, I heard this guy talking about maybe even dolphins have discovered the meaning of life for themselves. They go around swimming around every day in harmony. And we, maybe we could get there as humans from, if we start to attack things from um, a, a, a realistic point of view, and maybe not, not, not at this whole ideologies we hold right now. I think when it comes to meaning, 
I think when it comes to me, meaning will always be a personal thing that is subjective when it comes to life, if we're objectively going to talk about meaning. I mean, there is no one singular, agreeable, undefeated meaning or purpose to human life or human experience. There is no scientifically proven meaning to human life or human experience. For someone who is probably logical driven and logically driven in the sense of functionality and humanity as um the the center or should I say humanity is the center of um the earth, yeah? As the highest yeah. form of life on the earth. Of course they would feel this is their moral obligation to always advance the human society, yeah, to always push it towards as much height as it can possibly go. But for someone who doesn't believe in that, I don't particularly believe that's the meaning of life to me. I don't particularly believe that um, human beings are um, better than any other species just because we are the most evolved form of life. Yeah. So I don't think we have this grand purpose to find some sort of existential meaning in the entire universe for our existence. I, I, I dare say we might die trying the entire human population. But I think. That is where a lot of people's um, beliefs regarding hierarchy would probably differ. Because if you do believe in this, like I said, the um, superiority of the human experience over every other um, living organism on the earth, then yes, you definitely believe in um, hierarchy and that particular meaning in life. But if you don't, then you would agree that meaning is a personal thing. Yeah. And as long as you don't infringe on any other person's right to enjoy the life that they want and enjoy their own human experience, then you can believe in anything that you want to believe. That is why I'm not against antinatalists. I don't know if you've heard about the um, philosophy of antinatalism, David Benatar. Never, never, better to never have been born. Um, <laughs> the people who believe that um, it is morally sinful to bring a child into the world, hey, you should read, you should read on um, that particular stance you see that's the thing that's Benatar's meaning to life and a lot of critics have tried to criticize it but you know there's no objective I I just googled it and I think that's a very stupid view on life because I mean that's that defies evolution the whole purpose of chimps or like the evolutionary cycle that they're like their own ideology just um kind of cancels what we are as humans yeah but then the thing is why do you attach so much meaning to what we are as humans? Your perspective on your value as a human being is based on the fact that you are human and you feel superior over every other creature or being that exists on the surface of this planet. You believe that it is was designed for you to um to reign and control and be a steward for this planet, but that is not an undisputable fact. That is not fact that is what you believe and that is what um because for all we know this entire planet could be um a random experiment or random um thing that happened perchance by whatever <laughs> creator yeah i mean for all we know we have yeah, no if, singular basis if, if for the human experience <laughs> if it's That's a simulation then it then, then then we have to find meaning to it <laughs> i mean then when you say we have to find meaning to it do you want to force or compel people who feel like this entire experience is a painful and unnecessary one? Do you want to subject them to existence because you feel like we have to collectively find meaning to our experience? So, you know, most of, 
when you look at hierarchies and, you know, in society or maybe nature, you now tend to see things like schools. That, that means we should abolish everything we have now because why, why should this, why should a child go to school? Why should, why should anybody want to, you know, learn to do something, you know, want to add this value to themselves so that they could jump higher than someone else in the hierarchy of life? Well, I think for me, that's a personal question left answered by whomever it is that wants to go to school. Personally, if you ask me, I mean, if I was removed from human society as a whole, I wouldn't want to go to school. I wouldn't want the children that I raised to go to school. I probably, of course, want them to be knowledgeable and informed about so many um, world issues and um, so many factors that play several roles in the way that human lives are shaped. But I wouldn't want them to go to school because I feel like school is a structure that is just simply fundamentally, not only like fundamentally designed to place people in jobs and find connections and, you know, the social obligatory parts of it. But school is not a guarantee that you would be a knowledgeable, wise, intellectual person. It's not a guarantee that you will have any source of meaning in your life. It is just, to me, fundamentally an obligatory passage of rights that humans have to go through as long as they are part of a society, a societal structure. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I I don't want us to get stuck around in this cycle because you know there's so much we can talk about it. I I I have my own opposing views, but you know just to save time, okay. we could move forward to the recent issues around rape and rape culture concerning, you know the the ones we saw on Twitter, and what are your thoughts on because I I have my own reservations on you know these organizations that were set up to. That I think they were, their own goal was to kind of protect rape victims down to end rape. What are your thoughts on them and maybe concerning the whole recent rape them dilemma we've seen in the past few months? Well, of course, I, I think rape has been something that has always been happening in our societies. And I think that right now it's just because of the fact that so much focus has been put to it because people are actually speaking out and people are actually I'm heading movements to um, highlight these cases that have always been existing. So, and I think that this current um, wave of um, rape cases being brought to light um, can be both very, 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 very useful and very, very, very impactful and important to us in ending rape to some extent but i think when it is being um used perniciously when it is being used um um in the wrong hands um it can also be very um um terrible and me saying that is the fact that um this particular call i i do believe that a lot of times it's hard to find um you to find evidence for rape it's hard to find concrete proof that rape has happened in so many instances and sometimes people say stupid things like well why didn't you go and report immediately when it happened or why didn't you scream for help when it was happening to her well i don't think it is easy to make that statement if you have not been in a situation where you have been sexually assaulted or someone has tried to sexually assault you there are people who just freeze and can't do nothing it doesn't make any intellectual sense it doesn't make any rational sense for you to say why would you just freeze or why can't you just go out and tell people things? Of course, there's so many rational argu- arguments um, that can come out of that. But the thing is, when you are there in that particular moment, experiencing rape happen to you or 
sexual assault of any form, it is hard to rationally, for a lot of people, not everyone, of course, there are people who rationally act on the circumstance, but it's hard for a vast majority of people to act on that circumstance. And a lot of time it stems from the power dynamics that goes into um, situations of rape, um, the vulnerability that it encapsulates. And I think that is something that a lot of people who talk about trying to save men from defamation don't think about. It is a very complex issue, and I don't think we're anywhere near finding a perfect solution to ensuring that um, some innocent people don't get um, falsely accused and also to ensure that even victims who don't have proof can get the justice that they deserve. And that's why it leads a lot of people to asking, well, what is worse? Is it worse for um, a person to have their character defamed or is it worse for um, a victim to not be believed and leave her life entirely um, um, doubting her sanity and her relevance as a human being? And I think that's a question that um, collectively as a society, we need to sit down and have a discourse on because I don't think it's something that we can just form personal opinions on which scale we want to tip lower or higher. Yeah. So uh, I don't think I have a solution to that particular question. I, I, I don't think I've yeah. spent a ridiculous amount of time <laughs> going over it, though. I, I, I wish I had enough time uh, to think about it in that sense. But yeah, life. I've thought about it. I've, I've thought about it in the sense of um, like, like just the way murder can't, you, you, can't, you can't stop people killing each other. Mm-hmm. So maybe that kind of crime would still continue. And in the sense of, you know, like, like to, to be alive is to suffer and anything could happen at any time because I mean, it's not fair that a lion chases and eats a gazelle and, you know, kills them in that way. I mean, you, exactly. I mean, this is why someone like nature. Benata is saying, why do you have to force people to be born in the first place? If you are really painting this really green, um, <clears throat> green picture of the human experience. I mean, someone can say, oh, well, but there are beautiful things about life. I mean, you get to have family and experience love and pleasure and so many other things. But you really should read David Benatar. Yeah. I mean, I have criticism of his points and his views, but I don't think everything he's saying is pure rubbish as opposed to so many other people. So. I I I still I I still think that there as a, a, a green light. I mean, there's like a bright line, you know, between this is good and evil, you know, we could we could still see the human experience as a beautiful thing because there are so many things we 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 choose to ignore because bad things are a rare bad things are rare, oh, you really? know, bad people are rare. Well, it depends on your definition of bad, though. I mean, I think that's where the fundamental explanation of that whole statement is. I mean, take for example the lives of children who are born in um, Syria and other countries where they face war and hunger and starvation. Um, and take, for example, the experiences of people who are born with deformities and um, people who are born with brain issues and people who are born with um, tremendous forms of natural, of, of, of situations where they didn't want to be born into and they cannot do anything about the state in which they are born to suffer. I mean, take into account all of that. I think that's what colors the experience. You cannot know how someone is going to be born and experience life. You cannot know how 
because of course it's easier now that there's so much genetic engineering involved in detecting if um oh sorry not genetic engineering but like you know what I mean um in in figuring out if a a child can be born with um serious um um disability yeah, yeah? yeah and some parents can choose not to but then their parents who choose to have the children anyway and bring them into the world to suffer but yeah that's a conversation for another day but I'm just saying like um. There are other issues, even outside the medical aspect of knowing. There are mental health issues that are less talked about because people don't understand how it affects people who have to live and deal with these particular issues of taking medication day in, day out to survive. I mean, a lot of the times when you ask people like that, would you choose to never have been born? I think the answer is not very far-fetched. What I would say is that, I mean, um, I think it's... is is. It's kind of nihilist to paint the whole human experience in that light. I mean, I still feel like because I've thought about it in the sense of thinking you, 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 you brought up now. I've, I've talked about it in that sense. I'm not a nihilist. I'm trying Please to don't see get me wrong. <laughs> 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 Just looking at the clear my head that I'm not a nihilist. I'm sorry, nihilist, but I don't think that the human experience is just. I'm just objectively talking about um different point of views and um why you cannot necessarily dismiss someone's um point of view regarding particular issues i don't want to i, I don't have to 100% agree with someone to understand that they are um factual or mm. they are reasonable statements and reasonable points that they are making and i think benata is one of such people i mean even if i do not 100% agree with everything he's saying i do think that there are reasonable questions that he has raised and i feel like we need to have reasonable conversations before we dismiss those things and if we don't have reasonable answers to them well that's a conundrum that we need to address I I think like um, because I have had this conversation with my friend about you know just the true human nature what what human nature is and I feel like we have we are we are fond of digressing a lot in these conversations that we have I mean we've moved from so much <laughs> um conversations regarding rape and feminism and now we are purely on philosophy yeah. Yeah, we, we are still coming there because we are think we are, we, we, we are still talking about rape because it's so, part of suffering. And I, I don't know if we should continue digressing on this philosophical part of what it means to suffer or why suffering is inescapable. Well, 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 suffering is escapable. I mean, just don't exist. <laughs> 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 I mean that's realistic, but like that's a solution to not suffering, though. What are your thoughts on the Me Too movement? And because I want to address this victimhood culture that started, I think, with the, with the Me Too movement that was hijacked by false accusers and you know people who just wanted to gain attention at that point to claim victim is like you wear a certain crown if you could attain victimhood status during. Those times, even now, it's still happening. And I think it's time majorly from the Me Too movement around sexual harassment and rape and all those things. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm faced with this, this question every single time that I go online to have a conversation with people. And I, I, I think that is one of the biggest criticism I have, um, against the radical, um, left. But then it's also a criticism I have for people who downplay what it means to be um, a victim of circumstances. I mean, people use this large terms of, well, everyone's a victim of circumstances if you look at it. So why is it that some people have get to be given special privileges because they're um, victims of particular circumstances? Yeah. My problem is not in saying 
while these people who are victims of this particular injustice, like um, people who are marginalized, it's not insane. While these people need to always um, be put as priority, these people always need to be given special treatment. These people always need to be um, believed 100% whenever they see and they need to be unquestionable because they are fragile. Now, the problem is my, my, my criticism is on the fragility of victimhood mentality. And maybe it is not the victimhood mentality. It's probably my criticism of the fragility of being um, a victim as used as a means to um, give them a sense of impunity against criticism and a sense of impunity mm. against um, responsibility. Yeah, I do believe that people can be more be victims of more things than others. I do believe that for, um, say, example, a white person who lives in America and come, who comes from an upper middle class family, they have more um, privilege than someone who is a black person and comes from um, a lower middle class family. And I think that's a very um, blatant, um, blatant um, representation of um, privilege and um, what it means to be a victim of certain circumstances. And the problem <clears throat> with this particular example for me is the systemic representations of this injustice. It is that someone comes and meets me and tells me, well, there is no such thing as systemic racism in America. But then I look at them and I'm like, well, really, that's untrue. I mean, there's still so much identity politics being played in America. And I know a lot of people disagree with me on this particular issue, but I think it's one of these issues people don't really like outrightly have like enough points to agree or completely disagree with yeah so um but i think that um america is systemically built to sustain white people in power and to use them their experience and your narrative as the standard for people to be treated fairly and um to have access to opportunities and um in society yeah yeah and i think that's yeah. for me is why um i always still find myself taking the side of black people who are angry and who are oppressed i don't necessarily agree with all their representation sorry they are yeah no they are um ah what word do i use they are reflection of their anger the way they demonstrate their anger yeah. i don't necessarily 100% um um in line with that but I, I i do agree that there is a reason for them to be angry there is a reason for them to question the systems and there's a reason for everyone to have civil conversations regarding why particular things are the way that they are and how people can do better i don't think it is okay for a black person to look at a white person and says you have to take responsibility for what your ancestors did in, like um, yeah, yeah. years ago i mean that, that doesn't make any sense of course i would say white people should acknowledge their privilege in so many in so many ways and not white people like generally because there are white people that fare poorly than some black people in america you get it, it, it i feel like this statement is basically focused on people who are white and not just white but white and economically privileged yeah, yeah. exactly they are the ones that need to use their privilege to do what is right that's just it. Because I wouldn't say a, 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 a meth head um, in, let's say, um, a country mm. in the southern part of America who's living in like a trailer park 
has more privilege than the black yeah. person who is in the Oval Office. And um, yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> of course that's not true. But like yeah. socially um, and politically, it is true that white um, privileged people have more privilege than black privileged people. <laughs> I... I, I, I still have this objection that we all have privilege in a certain way. And um, I, 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 I should not just be, I should not just be walking around with, you know, some certain kind of mindset whereby, I, I, whereby, you know, this person has more privilege than me, then I should, you know, he has some kind of ethical responsibility to me. I, I still don't like that kind of worldview. But I think I think they have a they have I think they have a an ethical responsibility, but I don't think we can force them to do it. That's the difference. I think I do think if you're someone who believes in ethics and believes in morality, then you, of course you have an obligation to ensure that you use your privilege to um um help um correct injustices that are happening around the world. I think it's a moral obligation for anyone who exists with privilege. I think it's a privilege for Sorry, it's a moral obligation for me as um, an able-bodied um, woman to ensure that I speak up for disabled people as much as I can intentionally because I have the privilege of not being disabled. And there are disabled people who cannot access buildings because the um, buildings are not designed to accommodate them. Yeah? And I think that's my privilege. And mm. I think it's my moral obligation to do as much as I can to ensure that um, disab- disabled people are not left behind. So, and I think that's how it goes up the chain. You know, it's also a privilege for me to be basically, I mean, that's what, um, <laughs> I don't want to say something that can be used <laughs> against me somehow someday, but, <laughs> you know, I just think that it's a, a privilege that we all share in different levels. Of course, I, I wouldn't have the privilege of, um, say, um, someone who is a child of a politician, a Nigerian politician, for example, who has the power to, who has some certain amounts of le- um, of, of wealth and um, affluence in their disposal to mm. influence so many things. I wouldn't have that level of privilege that they have, but because I feel like they have a higher moral obligation than I do in so many aspects. They have a higher moral obligation to speak up against injustices and use their platform for, um, but of course it's not a forceful thing. But of course, I will obviously criticize them for not using their platform to do their moral obligation. But I will not force them. There is no law that should compel anyone to um, uphold moral obligations. I just think that as a decent human being, you use your privilege all, you should use your privilege all the time to try and right injustices. I, I think it just depends on our different moral compass though, because you know, I mean, People just some people just want to live. I know you are you are not one of the many fans of capitalism, and um, <laughs> and you know I, you, I know you would think that <laughs> that maybe the poor like the rich has a kind of obligation to the poor, but I I still feel it just depends on our individual moral compass. Well, that could be like is, a social responsibility. The I, thing is, you say individual moral compass. Can it be criticized though? Can you criticize? Can I can't criticize <clears throat> a rich person not wanting to redistribute wealth and I can't criticize their um, amassing of wealth and their exploitation of the lower working class. But can you criticize my stance to not um, expect that it's a moral obligation for these people to actually be um, held 
um, morally accountable to their um, obligations of fighting injustices using their privileges. You know, that's my point. Is that it's not about yeah. your personal stance on things. It's about objective criticism. If your beliefs cannot stand the test of objective criticism, then it's a problem. And I think that's how we should be looking at, like, I think that's how society as a whole should, um, should, should live on that sort of introspection regularly. I don't think there is any view in the world that is uh, immune, that is immune to criticism. I don't think just because um, trans people say they are women, that they are women, they have to mm. explain and people have to have conversations as regard how trans women are women. It's not just to say, oh, well, I wake up tomorrow and I say, well, I'm a trans man. And then people accept me for that mm. because I, I say it. I feel like it should be always open to criticism. So this is why I don't believe in the cancel culture. A lot of radical leftists use when someone gives an opinion that is different. For example, the J.K. Rowling situation where she said something. I don't agree with what J.K. Rowling, how J.K. Rowling said what she said. I think it's insensitive for someone mm. who is an author and someone who is a progressive um, individual. But I think she has the right to um, ask questions. Yeah, I think she has the right to ask a question yeah. about is a trans woman really a woman? And I think she has a right to bring her side of the argument. And I feel like we as a collective society have the right to listen to her. I, mean, I shouldn't use the word right. We have the responsibility to listen sure. to her and have a conversation that is civil regarding this particular topic. So that's my problem with a lot of people who just said, well, cancel her. She's a turf or cancel her. She hates trans people. You know? Yeah, I'm, I'm not even a fan of the council culture at all and at any level. And what I, I do feel because J.K. Rowling said something and, you know, this kind of thing inhibits free speech in the sense of we want people to be free, equal, you know, to say what they think, to express themselves freely. That's still part of the activism that people do. But we just can't sue people for what they think. Yeah. I, I know there are a lot of gender critical feminists around this issue, but maybe that's another kind of conversation. Let's, let's talk about you, your, I mean, your own life. I've seen your style. I mean, your, what was inspiring it? Because it's kind of unique in a way. I've seen, it's not, I've seen it in maybe movies, but you know, I'm trying to still touch it in the sense of, why she would embrace the style? What, what was what was the motivation? Would I say what was the back end behind it? Yeah. Um. Regarding my fashion sense, I think my fashion sense, sorry, is informed by a lot of things, and I think it started from right when I was like a child, because it started from when my mom would be like, um, wear skirts, and I'd be like, oh, so I wear the skirts, and then I sit down the word, and I want to sit down, and she's like, you can't sit down like that, wearing skirts, you need to sit down a certain way, and I'm like, then why do I have to wear the skirts in the first place? So I hated skirts, naturally, because I felt that they were very restrictive, mm. and they um, made me behave a certain way that I didn't want to behave, necessarily, so I hated skirts, naturally, from there. I mean, I liked climbing trees, and I liked um, playing, running, <laughs> and etc., so I felt like skirts was a hindrance to those kind of activities, and at the end of the day, if I was forced to wear a skirt, it had to be a long, very um, 
A-shaped skirt that allowed me the freedom to open my legs and, um, you know, do things the way that I did. That's what probably when I go to church, that's the kind of skirts that I and dresses that I only wore. So I had I always had an issue with bodycon um, clothing because I felt they were really restrictive. I think over time that has not changed. I like my clothing to be as comfortable and um, less restrictive as possible. And um, regarding that, my number one um, influence my clothing to be less um, restrictive and as comfortable as possible than the next is probably um, I, I, I feel like I'm drawn to artistry and experimentation regarding artistry and I think for me depending on whatever like like whatever um, phase in my sense of um, reception of art is yeah yeah I think that's what informs whatever um, way that my clothing choices are um, informed outside comfort and um, freedom. So if it's a phase where I really am into colors, then I wear a lot of clothes that are colorful. If it's a phase where I'm really into um, structure, then I'm wearing a lot of toned um, colors like brown and beige and gray, but with a lot of more of frills and, you know, borders and lines. And that's just it. It's sometimes it's just like that. I like to experiment with that but the only thing that i always know is always static is my love for comfort and unrestricted clothing that has never changed yeah that's 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 really interesting that's a lot to unpack though and um, what was your general philosophy towards life you know as a whole how do you say you approach life right now um okay uh i would say to live life in a constant state of um introspection um fully open to change and criticism and um, to also do as much good as I possibly can. I think for me, that's my ultimate current philosophy yeah. on life. <laughs> I like to ask my guests um, what they think is the meaning of life at the end, but I think that would be a really, really stupid question <laughs> to ask now. now that oh we- my God. <laughs> <laughs> so what's just one thing you want everybody to hear i mean a lot of people listen to this podcast what do you want to tell them um i want to just tell them that um always always be open to criticism your current beliefs are not foolproof yeah you're not the only way to do things and not the ultimate way to do things I think you should always leave yourself open to change because it's a constant part of growth. And if you're not changing, well, it's an indicator that you're not necessarily growing, is it? Isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I just yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I really love this conversation. I, I, so I, and I think I do hope you come back another time. You know, we'll address so some other kind of issues. I hope and, so too. <laughs> and, um, it was nice having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the end. If you enjoy this conversation, please share this episode, subscribe to this podcast, also leave a five-star review. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, don't forget to contact me at Hinted Neuron on Instagram and Twitter. That's it for me this week. And until then, stay curious.